0: There is a bad old joke about a big old church in a major city with a lot of very rich members in that congregation, and one of those members commissions an original sculpture for the front lawn of their big old church building. He insists on a biblical theme, which is a good idea. He wants a big image of a camel passing through the eye of a needle. Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, modern Christians have spent a lot of time trying to whittle that image down to something that makes sense. One theory is there is a narrow gate called the Needle Gate in the Wall of Jerusalem. And in that gate, there's a door called the Needle's Eye. And anyone who wants to take a camel inside, when the gate is closed, has to climb down off its back, take whatever the camel is carrying, and bring camel and cargo through the Needle's Eye, all on his own. Ah. Well, if that's correct, then we can take it with us. We just have to walk humbly on our own two feet and carry our riches in our arms. So it's possible. Sorry, no. And there's no real historical evidence to support that reading of this passage. We can't take it with us. But there is a linguistic debate. Does Jesus say camel or cable? The words sound different in English, but in the the Greek that Mark wrote and the Aramaic that Jesus spoke, they're just one vowel sound apart. Does Jesus say it's easier for a ship's hawser or to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because that's that cable, that braided rope that is so important on on boats and and ships. Jesus' disciples who were fishers would have got that one, trying to squeeze a cable, a hawser through the eye of a needle, except that those ropes do pass through eyes that they are designed to pass through. The image of a camel going through the eye of a needle also appears in the Quran. And a Muslim commentator makes a lot of sense. Camel, cable, we don't have to decide. The, the image is still clear, and he said, we will leave the quibbling to the Christians. But I think we have trouble sometimes believing that Jesus could exaggerate for effect, that Jesus could use preposterous images. We don't think Jesus should use hyperbole because, after all, we are supposed to take all his words literally, aren't we? Well, we don't take them all literally, but I think there is a nagging, a nagging fear that maybe we are supposed to. Now in this story, Jesus dismantles some common assumptions about who's blessed and who's not, about who's qualified to come into the kingdom. Jesus has been talking about this kingdom from the beginning of his mission, and he insists it's real, but it's still a deep mystery that they just can't get. As Jesus is setting out on a journey, a man runs up and kneels before him and asks him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' Now that stops everyone in their tracks. They see a man, we're later told, is very wealthy. They see him on his knees, so he's taking up the posture of a a disciple who wants to commit to follow a rabbi, a teacher. So Jesus' audience will assume that this man isn't just well-off in life, but they believe his prosperity is a sign of God's blessing on him and his family. And they figure as well that the rich have time to worry about keeping the law to the letter. The poor, who have to work and work hard, don't have time to dot all the ritual I's and cross all the T's of observance of the law. They do their best, but they know that they probably don't make the grade. That's why they are so interested in Jesus, because Jesus seems to have a different take on what it takes to be in good with God. But what does this rich, blessed, and obedient man, this passionate man, need from Jesus? Because he's already got everything he needs. The man asks, what good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now like a good rabbi, Jesus responds first with a question, although he doesn't wait for an answer. Like a good teacher, he then goes to his text, his, his source. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, defraud. Jesus puts that one in. Honor your father and mother. It's a revised summary of the commandments that have to do with how one should treat another. The rich man gives the right answer. I have observed all of these things from my youth. Everybody's conditioned to think that's the right answer, but Jesus says this very good man still lacks one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Now, we're not told what happens to this man after he gets up, turns away, and walks away. This is a teaching moment for Jesus and his disciples, and as far as Mark is concerned, the man doesn't matter anymore. But we do know what happens when Jesus' disciples respond to Jesus' words. Mark says they and everybody else are perplexed, and Jesus doesn't help with his talk about camels or cables and needles. Preposterous, impossible, and Jesus hears them muttering, then who can be saved, if not even the righteous rich can get into the kingdom. Jesus cuts in. For mortals, it's impossible. For God, all things are possible. Now, Peter speaks up, and he spoils the moment, as Peter often does. But he asks an important question. What about us? We have left everything to follow you. What about us? Jesus responds and exaggerates again. He casts a vision of a hundredfold return on investment in the kingdom. And then he shatters it with one word persecution. So, yes, you will find reward, but don't get so caught up on it that you lose touch with the harsh realities. Of life in the here and now. For mortals, it's impossible. For God, all things are possible. And that is one of Jesus' general operating principles. And in, the, in this case, it means God calls us and claims us. God opens the gate for us to enter. Nothing we have qualifies us for entry. Nothing we could do pays our admission. And nothing we might bring with us could add anything to the kingdom of God. If we believe what we have makes us who we are. If we've invested the best of ourselves in our treasures, we're blind to the vision and just don't understand the values of the kingdom of God. Now, does Jesus mean that we have to sell all we own and give the money to the poor? Maybe. Maybe not. It depends. What do you and I really treasure in our lives? You and I are among the wealthiest people in the whole world. We we get that. We also understand that in our little part of the world, Most of us are somewhere in the middle, upper, middle, maybe, of the scale. And we know true wealth isn't just about money or possessions. It isn't just about money or possessions. But what we have, earn, and keep still count. So what do you treasure most? Is it a possession? Maybe it's something that you have inherited. It speaks to you of heritage, relationship, love. Is it a person, a particular relationship, someone you rely on and need to have in your life? Is it the ability, to do something that gives you great joy and do it well? Is it the freedom to do as you need and as you please because you can afford it? What do you treasure most? And what do you fear would happen if you were to lose it? Or maybe you feel that what you have treasured most is already lost. You and I are standing, or kneeling, right beside that rich young man on his knees in front of Jesus, and we want what he wants, eternal life, life full and free, glorifying and enjoying God forever. We want that because we know if we get it and live it, we'll change the world and not just for ourselves, but for everyone. That's the kingdom of God. We know what Jesus will tell the rich young man to do. We know what he will do, turn away and walk away. But let's imagine Jesus' words take hold in that rich young man's heart, and let's hope he's not lost to the kingdom. But what will Jesus say to us Maybe he will ask, what do you treasure most? Tell me about it. What happens? What do you feel? What do you experience when you hold it? What do you do? Because your treasure is yours. Does your treasure set you free? Or does it hold you back? That inheritance that legacy and all the good things it represents, that relationship, the person you love so much in body and soul or in memory, that ability, that obviously God-given gift that makes you feel so good when you use it, your wealth and the freedom it affords you to do as you need and as you please. Does your treasure set you free or does it hold you back? Does it make you close your hands tight? Or does it relax your grip? Does just the thought of your treasure make you so happy you just have to share your joy with someone? Or does it make you afraid that you'll lose it, so you want to hide it and hide with it? If what we treasure If what we value most in life sets us free to share, to welcome, to serve, to make a difference in the world, then we have treasure in heaven too. And yes, that may mean, as it has meant for some over time, to let go of everything. It can also mean putting everything we have to work in service of the kingdom and then we'll discover we're already in the kingdom.